This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. This is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, we'll meet Chris Thompson. He was a guest on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. Podcast host Randy Wilburn talks with him about how Chris's experience with addiction led to the creation of the Sober Sidekick app. First, for this edition of our show, a new monument honoring Confederate veterans buried in Eureka Springs City Cemetery was recently erected on a privately owned burial plot. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the obelisk was commissioned by the plot's owner and permitted by a lone Eureka Springs Cemetery commissioner. The gray limestone obelisk stands 15 feet tall and is surrounded by Confederate flags. It's emblazoned with the great seal of the Confederate States of America dated 1862. The $10,000 monument was erected in Eureka Springs Cemetery on two empty plots purchased by county resident Colton Massey for $1,000, according to city records. Massey serves as commander of the Sons of Confederate Veteran Seaborn Jones Cotton Camp in Eureka Springs, named after his fourth great-grandfather who fought for the Confederacy. Massey declined being interviewed, but in several emails for this report wrote that the monument is dedicated to the 75 known Confederate men and boys that died during the Civil War among an estimated 200 Carroll County Confederates who perished. Massey says the monument serves as a final grave marker, giving descendants of Carroll County Confederates a place to visit and lay flowers to remember their ancestors. The Confederate monument, however, was installed in the public cemetery without notice, says City Council Member Harry Meyer. Confederate monuments have been coming down all over the United States in public places. And my goodness, we have one here now. It is absurd. It is an insult. Of more than 4,500 graves in Eureka Springs Cemetery, 96 contain the remains of Civil War veterans, both Union and Confederate, which number around 50. For several years, Massey installed perpetual Confederate flags on Confederate graves in the cemetery until he was discovered and told to obtain consent from family members. Eureka Springs Mayor Butch Berry visited the cemetery to take a look at the new Confederate obelisk. I was amazed that it was that somebody had built it, that it was constructed, you know. And I was curious too as to who or you know who it was, and and then uh, then I found out that you know that uh, this guy Coat, I don't remember what his last name is, uh, had it done. After we contacted him, Mayor Barry issued an email to the city attorney and cemetery officials writing that cemetery plot owners are entitled to First Amendment rights of expression. Blake Geary, attorney with the Arkansas Municipal League, which represents 500 cities and towns in Arkansas on legal and civic matters, says Arkansas's public cemetery code deals mainly with the disposal of the dead, leaving regulatory oversight to cities and towns. If it is his individual plot, then I'd have a hard time arguing that he doesn't have a right to put something there, You know, again, regardless of what the speech looks like. The Confederate States of America was comprised of 11 states, including Arkansas, that seceded from the Union in 1860 following the election of anti-slavery President Abraham Lincoln. 
led by Jefferson Davis, the Confederacy advocated for institutional enslavement of African Americans, but within five years suffered a crushing defeat in the Civil War. Following the war, more than 700 Confederate monuments and memorials were installed on public properties, mainly across the South, by rebel advocates seeking to preserve their heritage. Only a handful were ever removed, that is, until 2015, when the Charleston, South Carolina African American Church massacre and soon after a white nationalist unity march in Charlottesville, Virginia, sparked demand by progressives to tear down Confederate monuments. More than 160 Confederate monuments and memorials have since been removed from American public parks and building sites, including five monuments in Arkansas. But this new Confederate monument is among the first to be erected in Arkansas since that purge, without, apparently, informing Eureka Springs Cemetery Commission or City Council. In an email for this report, former cemetery superintendent Bruce Wright, who declined to talk by phone, wrote that he had sole authority over monuments and gravestones in the city cemetery, and that, yes, he oversaw the erection of the Confederate obelisk. When I was uh, working there, the superintendent had to bring those things to the attention of the commission just so that they would know what was going on. Former Eureka Springs Cemetery groundskeeper Patrick Lujan, who for a short period served as sextant, says that role changed after Bruce Wright took over as superintendent. He says he also observed Wright decorating graves. Bruce used to, he was the one who used to put up all the Confederate flags and, you know, he would, he would oversee the installation of the flags on the different uh, plots that were there at the cemetery. Uh, and then eventually he turned that over to Colton, but he originally was the one doing the flags. But Lujan says Wright eventually stopped flagging graves. So my, my thought was, and it is my thought, is that he, uh, you know, uh, once he was got onto the commission and such and started getting more involved with the cemetery, that he turned it over to Colton. We queried Bruce Wright about the flagging. He didn't respond. City Cemetery Commission Chair L.B. Wilson, who also serves as superintendent, declined to comment for this report. But last week, he notified the public that the cemetery now has automated security gates, which open at dawn and close at dusk. Former groundskeeper Patrick Lujan says security cameras have also been installed, with several pointed directly at the obelisk. As for City Council Member Harry Meyer, he says the Cemetery Commission should have blocked installation of what he describes as a monument to white supremacy in the town burial ground. And uh, all I can say is I would love to have our Cemetery Commission just resign over this. I think it's that bad. Two years ago, the conservative-majority Arkansas legislature created Act 1003, the Arkansas State Capitol and Historical Monument Protection Act. The law bars removal or relocation of monuments from public property, except by state, county, or local governments that own the monuments, which must seek waivers to do so. Because the Eureka Springs Cemetery Confederate Monument appears to have been strategically installed on private deeded cemetery property under state law, it can't be removed. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
You can listen again to any story or interview you hear on Ozarks at Large by going to ozarksatlarge.com. You can also share anything you hear on our show by using the links associated with each interview or story at ozarksatlarge.com. And if you'd like to keep up with what's been on Ozarks at Large each day, you can subscribe to the free daily KUAF Ozarks at Large email newsletter. You can subscribe at KUAF.com. Each morning newsletter, Monday through Friday, includes a rundown of what was on the previous day's show with direct links to each of those features. The Bentonville Film Festival is opening today, and in-person screenings of submitted films continue through Saturday. Yesterday on the show, we discussed the film Giving Birth in America, Arkansas, that's being shown this afternoon. Also included on the first day, tonight's presentation of the feature film Hard Miles, starring Matthew Modine about an unlikely cycling team of teenage convicts. Among tomorrow's highlights, the movie Hummingbirds. It's about best friends caught in the immigration process at the Texas-Mexico border. That film, directed by Silvia del Carmen Castellanos and Estefania Bebe Contreras, is screened tomorrow afternoon at 1.30 at Skylight Cinema 6 in downtown Bentonville. Full schedules can be found at bentonvillefilm.org. And another festival, the Arkansas New Play Festival, will begin Sunday. For eight days, new works will be staged at The Medium in Springdale, The Momentary in Bentonville, and many of them at Theater Squared in downtown Fayetteville. We'll have more details about the festival later this week on Ozarks at Large, but you can find out more right now at theater2.org. Opera in the Ozarks presents its 72nd season now through July 21st at Inspiration Point in Eureka Springs. Featuring 22 performances of three fully staged operas, including Donizetti's Elixir of Love, Copeland's The Tender Land, and Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld, plus a special Broadway cabaret in Fayetteville, and more. Tickets and season schedule at opera.org. Ahead on our show, Aisha Harris, a co-host of the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Just this past spring, Johnny Depp uh, premiered in a Cannes film uh, uh, feature following, you know, last year, his his whole debacle with his ex-wife, uh, Amber Heard. And, uh, you know, I, I think that call-out culture is the right word because we are living in a time where anyone can call anyone out. I've been called out online. I, anyone who's online is going to be called out at some point. Our conversation about her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, ahead. The book on store shelves today. Hi, I'm Anna Pope, KUAF's Growth Impact Reporter, asking you, how many times have you said to a friend, I was listening to KUAF and heard this story? That's what KUAF is all about. The stories, news, and insights making you stop and think. It's radio you want everyone to hear, and it's radio that exists because of listener support. As we celebrate 50 years on the air in 2023, show how much you value KUAF by becoming a sustaining member today. Give online at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is Ozarks at Large, and thanks to everyone who has contributed and supported KUAF, Public Radio, and Ozarks at Large this month and over the past year. Thanks again. A new study from the University of Arkansas finds that cycling in northwest Arkansas is generating more than $150 million in economic impact. 
The research, conducted by the Center for Business and Economic Research at the university, was commissioned by the Walton Family Foundation. Among the findings, the cycling business, including sales of bikes, repairs, and equipment sales, created more than $100 million in revenue, and tourism associated with biking is responsible for an additional $59 million. The report also concludes the cycling industry is responsible for more than 700 new jobs, most of them either in retail or parts manufacturing. And the report also finds that about a third of Northwest Arkansas residents say they have ridden a bike in the previous 12 months. Transitions continue at the Department of Arkansas Parks, Heritage, and Tourism. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is naming Mark Ryle as director of the state's Department of Heritage. He'll replace the retiring Jimmy Bryant. Bryant leaves the job at the end of this month. In recent weeks, Tourism Director Travis Knapper announced he would lead that office for a job in the private sector. And Mike Mills, the former secretary of the department, left that job after just a few months after being selected for the position by the governor. The Arkansas Scholarship Lottery is coming off some of the strongest May sales in history. Lottery officials report more than $50 million in lottery chances were sold last month. That's the third highest amount in the month of May since 2010. A report from the Arkansas Lottery indicates that translates to about $9.1 million raised for scholarships. That's also the third highest amount for the month of May in the lottery's history. Efforts continue to restore the former home of a member of the Little Rock Nine. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has this report. The project to preserve a 1,400-square-foot home once lived in by Ernest Green moved forward Monday with a siding removal workshop. Led by historic preservationist Bob Yap, student workers yanked decades-old aluminum siding off the house to expose the hardwood beneath. Patricia Blick, executive director of the Quapaw Quarter Association, says the one-story home has been perfect for teaching people how to preserve old houses. Um, the siding is in pretty good shape. It's going to need some attention. Right now they're taking off the artificial siding, removing nails, and removing a lot of staples that were was holding down that sort of insulation material. Ernest Green was among the first nine black students to desegregate Little Rock Central in 1957 and was the first of the group to graduate from the school. Scott Green says his uncle is supportive of the renovation project and that he hopes to paint the house a blue-gray with a red statement door. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Talk Business and Politics reports Fort Smith Metro home sales dropped by just more than 20 percent. The decline comes when interest rates are more than double what they were two years ago. Talk Business reports that first quarter home sales in the city metro were down 20.5 percent and sales values were down just more than 23%. The full report can be found at talkbusiness.net. And the Eureka Springs Auditorium will host a major country star this fall. It was announced yesterday that Joe Nichols will be on stage at the Odd Friday, September 5th. Tickets are scheduled to go on sale Friday morning at tickets.thunderticks.com, and Thunderticks is spelled T-H-U-N-D-E-R-T-I-X. The NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour is a delightful dip into the world of what we're watching, reading, eating, and listening to. 
But regular listeners know it's much more than just a catalog of what's hot or what's not. Each episode, hosts and guests go deeper, deconstructing what our pop culture may or may not be reflecting about us or projecting onto us. Alicia Harris, a co-host of the Pop Culture Happy Hour, continues this approach in her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It's a book that's out today. Recently, I talked with her about the book and asked her about that word toward the beginning of its title, Reckoning. It just felt like the right word because what I, the way I approach pop culture, especially pop culture of my past and the things that um, I've consumed many times over is sort of always wrestling with how it makes me feel in that moment. And it's almost always different. Like it, even, even if I still enjoy it, still love it, oftentimes I will go back and I will, you know, rewatch Sex in the City, which I mentioned a few times in the book and be like, oh man, this doesn't hold up as quite as well as I remember it being. Um, but I still get that same feeling of nostalgia and I still enjoy the banter and everything, but it, but it is still, um, it's always a process. I think engaging with pop culture is a continuous process for me. Um, and that's why I think Reckonings uh, explains that so, so well. We're not going to be able to talk about all the things I would want to talk about this book, but I also love, there's a bit of a discussion about the loss of monoculture, how there used to be things that we all saw and could all talk about it, and whether that's okay or bad or whether we should be concerned about that. Yeah, I I, I come down on the side of I don't think... For one thing, the monoculture was never actually a real thing. I think, uh, obviously, but but I think that there was more of a sense of a a coming together than there is now, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But I do think it's a something that we need to be aware of because it it makes uh, it makes us a little bit feistier, I think, and and it makes us interact in ways that are not always healthy, especially online uh, when we're we're talking. I'm talking specifically about like fandoms and quote unquote toxic. Fandoms fandoms of people who are overly zealous and then take out that overzealousness on strangers on the internet. Um, so <laughs> I think I think it's both a, a good thing that we have so much pop culture that can appeal to uh, lots of individuals. Um, but I also think that it's affected the way we talk to each other in ways that aren't necessarily great. You have wonderful chapters devoted to whether it's are we are we too much into nostalgia? Is it is that a bad thing? The history of the black friend in pop culture from Huck Finn on. I get the feeling that one of the hard things for you to do with this book was limit the the <laughs> number of chapters and topics you wanted to really go into. Yeah, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a nerd, a research nerd. Uh, I love to take deep dives into you know. Lexus Nexus and and uh, YouTube old YouTube news clips and news clippings. Um, it, it's it, it was hard and and but like what I hope comes through in this book is that even though there are lots of rabbit holes that I am am bringing us down, there is sort of a way in which they they all kind of coalesce into a, an understanding of that like everything is connected in a way. <laughs> um, and and the, the challenge for me was just like, okay, how do these connect in a way that will make sense? Not just in my brain, because my brain is always firing at all, all cylinders on this, but will make sense for the reader. And, and I think I pulled it off. Oh, I think you did. <laughs> I think you absolutely did. Um, also a great uh, bit that you devote to cancel culture, but I love that you said, no, it's call out culture. 
And I had, yes. I love the difference in that because you point out people who've been, quote, canceled are still working, are still very much there. Yes. I mean, just this past spring, Johnny Depp uh, premiered in a Cannes film uh, uh, feature following, you know, last year, his his whole debacle with his ex-wife, uh, Amber Heard. And, uh, you know, I, I think that call out culture is the right word because we are living in a time where anyone can call anyone out. I've been called out online. Anyone who's online is going to be called out at some point. Um, but cancel culture, true cancel culture is a word that I think is thrown around too, like too much, uh, the word cancel. And I think that it's important to make that distinction. Um, and I, I think it's, it's pretty clear in the book how, where I fall on the idea of cancel culture. <laughs> I also like, and you quote Kenny G, you say <laughs> this one part, <laughs> Kenny G gets it, where he he's talking about people who, you know, defend, well, why his music was polarized, and you take it to this bigger thing that sometimes we identify so much with a, a piece of popular culture that we're invested in, that we take it personally when someone doesn't like it. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've had to myself deal with within myself um, and, and not take things too personally. And I encourage people to not take things personally because just because a critic or another person in your life says they didn't like this one thing doesn't mean that they are saying something about you, unless you think it's about you. Uh, <laughs> in that case, maybe you need to do a little bit of self-reflection. <laughs> <laughs> but it's easy to be on either side of that, right? I mean, yeah, we've all absolutely. called people out too. Oh, absolutely. That it that is just human nature. Um, but you know, there are ways to be more thoughtful about it and not to jump immediately to um being negative or being angry about things. Um, uh, because that's just not a fun way to live. I think we should all be able to like what we like and dislike what we dislike without uh feeling as though everyone else has to feel the same way as you do. Finally, I'm a generation or two older than you, have been a pop culture fanatic my entire life, grew up coming home from school watching Green Acres and reruns on television, <laughs> and always wanted to have deeper conversations about popular culture and what, how it might be connected to us. But when I was growing up, that was considered not something you did. That was considered low value, low rent, pop culture was this, quote, real life was over here. I think it's great that we're actually admitting how this can influence us both positively and negatively. Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful to live in a time now where we can take these things more seriously because I really do think do think that pop culture is political, always has been, um, but it's perhaps even more so now because sometimes the intersections, the the, the divide between politics and pop culture is so not existent at this point, you know, when you have conservative talking heads who are complaining about Little Mermaid being black now, like there's there's no there's no way to sort of separate the two. And so I think it's it's good that we embrace it. And I think that uh, if we embrace it, we should just be uh, very mindful of how we embrace it. Aisha Harris is author of the new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, which is out today. She's also co-host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Our conversation took place via Zoom late last month. This is Ozarks at Large.
The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites families to explore the newest exhibition, Building Buddies, where children are encouraged to construct, build, paint with light, and more, all in a multi-sensory environment full of STEAM learning activities intended to encourage social behaviors such as sharing, cooperating, taking turns, and teamwork. Now open at the Amazium and included with admission. For more information, amazium.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, it's not quite summertime yet, but we'll celebrate like it is anyway. Summertime And the living is easy Fish are jumping And the cotton, it is high Two members of the band Coloring 12, Loren Clare and Jake Herzog, were in our Furman Garner Performance Studio last week to deliver a preview of their performance that will take place in the Lower Ramble in Fayetteville on Friday. We'll hear that full song, learn about the band's name, and more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen when you want via the free Ozarks at Large podcast. Little baby, it only takes seconds for that one story to grab your ear to make you smile. In an instant, the news can turn upside down. I'm Corva Coleman, and it only takes seconds to support the journalism that helps you understand what's happening and what it means. Take a moment now to make sure we'll be here with you through the joy, the chaos, and whatever else tomorrow brings. You can support KUAF right now at supportkuaf.com. We're nearing the end of our fiscal year, and we'd like to go into the next fiscal year as strong and independent as ever. I know sometimes the news can feel overwhelming. You may wonder if there's anything you can do. Staying informed, one of the most important things we can do as citizens. Investing in public news services like KUAF is another. KUAF doesn't have one person or organization funding our program. Instead, We're supported by thousands of your neighbors, which means you hear the stories that are diverse and objective. You can join them today. You can become a sustaining member of KUAF right now, safely and securely at supportkuaf.com. And thank you. On this week's episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, host Randy Wilburn talks with Roe Bailey and Anthony Ball, two of the driving forces behind this weekend's Juneteenth celebration taking place in Springdale. You can hear that episode right now at imnorthwestarkansas.com. Both Roe and Anthony have been on very recent editions of our show, and you can hear those conversations and find out more about what's happening with both the Juneteenth celebration and the month-long art celebration called Assembly by searching for those discussions at ozarksatlarge.com. We're taking this opportunity to share an episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas that dropped earlier this year. In January, Randy shared his visit with Chris Thompson. Chris is the creator of the Sober Sidekick app. I encourage you to listen to the entire conversation, but we're going to pick up in the middle 
for this week's excerpt. Chris Thompson explains how on Thanksgiving Day 2018, he was in an unfamiliar city, Los Angeles, with virtually no possessions. It had rained the night before and it never rains in LA and the whole night it was raining. I was just trying to move where like the rain wasn't constantly dripping on my forehead, like literally a bottom that I never imagined for myself. Yeah. Far away from home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what that's like when you hear those stories. And and I think we all love a good comeback, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you were at that, we would call the nadir, right? The, the lowest point. Mm-hmm. I mean, where were you mentally as far as that was concerned? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for people to get over a substance abuse issue is because their body has become dependent on it. So for me that morning, you know, I was waking up when I woke up, my body was in the worst shape ever. You can die from, you know, alcohol withdrawals. Sure. And, you know, I, I've had these symptoms before, but I was like somewhat disconnected from reality. You know, like I knew what was real and I knew what wasn't, but what wasn't real felt way more real. Like yeah, hallucinations, delirium tremens, like, you know, completely sober, but can't walk straight, like can't put together a thought. And, you know, it's Thanksgiving day and I'm sitting outside the supermarket and I'm watching people go in and out buying groceries, pumpkin pies, all these different things. And, you know, I had tried to ask a few people if I could borrow their phone and they're like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. You know, and I, On I Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I realized I had gotten to that point, you know, I had gotten to that point where I'm that guy on the side of the road that no one wants to talk to. Yeah. And, you know, there's a thought that I'd heard in AA meetings before that, which, you know, people had described their rock bottom as my best thinking got me here. Mm. And, you know, that was one of my first honest thoughts of that day is my best thinking got me here, which was the humility that I didn't have up to that point, which is I don't have the answers. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how I got here. I don't know whose fault it is, if it's my fault, if it's genetics, if it's trauma, like, but it doesn't matter at this point because only I can take responsibility for my life. And there's plenty of people who have overcome way worse situations. Yeah. And, you know, that's where the question I, I started to ask in my head is, you know, what if today is my day one? And one day or day one, what if day, today is day one? Yeah. So then based on what you just said to me, mm-hmm. had you tried to go through AA before you hit this lowest point? Had you, so you had you tried to, to fix the problem? Yeah, yeah. So I had tried. I've I've been trying probably for the last nine months and I couldn't put together 30 days. The reason I was in California is I called a hotline and wanted treatment for the first time. And I kind of want to treatment with the perspective that maybe they can fix me. Sure. And I mean, the biggest lesson for me in recovery is it's me versus me. Yep. You know, You are your greatest competition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There is nobody else. Yeah. And that's a blessing or a curse. And, you know, for the last four years, it's been a blessing because if everything is someone else's fault, there's nothing I can do to make my life better. Right. But any area that I can see my role in the situation is an area that I can get better in an area that life can expand for me. 
And yeah, yeah, it's that victim mode that is, is so easy to fall into. And I thought I had the best victim story ever. So <laughs> you were like going to get an Academy Award for your victim story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So then, okay, so you're in L.A., you are soaked. It's Thanksgiving um, mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah. And, and at that moment, that was kind of for you the moment where you said, all right, this something has to change. Yeah. What changed? Yeah. So I guess I imagine like, you know, it's hard putting together like the order of events or the order of thoughts. But I, I was picturing myself like 20 years from now. Yeah. And it's like, imagine if you look back 20 years from now and told a story about today was the day that you made that change. And then taking a step back and then focusing on today, it's like you know, just more focused on today and that moment than ever before. Right. Because today is the only day that matters. I mean, they're going to take action today or I won't, you know, and I just committed that, you know, recovery is going to be my number one goal. That's going to be my number one priority because all the times up until then, it was like, it was my goal, but it was kind of an ancillary goal, like to get like, I need to figure out how to you know, stop drinking so I can go back to work yeah. or I need to figure out how to stop drinking so I can like, you know, hold a relationship or hold a friendship, right. you know, and it was always for these external things that weren't me. Yeah. You know, I need to, I need to get sober so I can stop disappointing my family, you know? Mm-hmm. And also it's that that guilt and that shame and that stigma, which all of that, like the worst part of guilt and shame is the self-imposed part because everyone has opinions, no matter whether you're doing well or you're doing terrible, like people are going to have opinions. Yeah. So, you know, since then, you know, I feel nothing but gratitude for where I am and where I came from. But when you're internal guilt and your internal shame is so strong, then anything anyone says externally only amplifies that. So, you know, the other big leap was just setting aside that guilt and shame and, you know, doing whatever I needed to do to get help, you know, going wherever I needed to go to get help and just saying I need help. And it took me like 10 hours to get to where I needed to get because the first few places didn't work out. But I finally walked into a sober living that I had gotten kicked out of like a month before and just walked in and my friend Bill and Aaron were there. I just walked in and said, I need help. And that's when, you know, all the help came my way. And then you also said somewhere that you had reached out to your mom, I guess, Mm -hmm. about helping you out. And you were like, listen, this is it. I've got to do it now or it's not going to happen. And and she was able to help you, I guess. Yeah. So that that was the step before that. So I had gone to a, a hospital and found my way there. And you know, I was trying to say whatever I needed to say to get help. And they just said, this isn't a homeless shelter, but you can use the phone. So I, I called my mom and, you know, of course it's Thanksgiving. So yeah. she's stepping away from family and I'm just, I'm just feeling it, you know, from the perspective that all the families on the East coast, mm-hmm. like I'm putting them through this, like they haven't heard from me in a week and they're trying to, my phone is gone. They're, and, you know, putting them through all this. And 
she offered to order me an Uber from the hospital to the sober living. And I just said, like, this is the last time. And I truly felt like I meant it at the time. And now four years later, I, I believe. Yeah. You said that it was about you were only like 60 days sober when I guess and when most people would still be hyper focusing on themselves. You were thinking, man, you know, there should be something out there for other people that are going mm. through what I'm going through that can kind of help them along the way. Mm. Is that in its simplest form how Sober Sidekick was born? Yeah, well, it was actually 30 days later okay. where I started. Oh, I, I don't want to shortchange you now. 30 days. Okay. 60 days is when it was released. Okay. I got you. I got um, you. I love that. But I mean, the simple fact is that you're, you're 30 days being mm, clean mm, and sober, and already you're thinking about ways that not, not only it would benefit you, but it would ultimately help other people. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't call that selfless. In fact, I can make the case that it was selfish from the perspective that in recovery, I, I've learned that it's all about getting outside of yourself. Yeah. Like that's how you remain on track. That's how you, you know, stay grounded. That's how you, you stay in peace. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but, you know, the third step prayer, God, who I just identify as a higher power that I will never understand. The third step prayer goes like, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me, to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage to self, so I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them can bear witness to your love, your power, and your way of life. And the biggest line for me, the line that I hold on to in that prayer is, relieve me of the bondage to self. And I believe recovery isn't about overcoming alcohol or drugs. It's overcoming ego. Alcohol and drugs is just the fuel that makes you so attached to your ego and so it, so much in self-preservation mode. Sure. Fear-driven. And fear only comes from ego. You know, it's about protecting a conception of yourself that isn't even real. So for me, like this felt like the best thing I could be doing yeah. for myself. And for one, like I've always been an entrepreneur and I like to code, you know, it, it gets my creative juices going. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. All that being said, I, I think it was the best thing I could have done for myself at the time. And so, so Sober Sidekick has been in existence for almost four years or four years right now? Almost four almost years. Almost four years. Okay. Yeah. And then can you give us kind of a walkthrough of, of what this app does? Yeah. And why people should even care about it. Yeah, yeah. So from a broader perspective, one of the things we believe, our, we, our team believes, is that isolation is the single biggest social determinant of health in all behavioral health, but you can make the case throughout healthcare. And quality of life is dependent, in my opinion, largely on where on the spectrum of isolation and connectedness you feel. Yeah. And when you're in recovery, you know, you need connection like right now sometimes, and it might be 2 a.m. And, you know, so I was sitting in an AA meeting and I was watching the support flow back and forth and no one go without support. And, you know, I was thinking like, how could we create an algorithm where no one ever goes without support? And that's the most important aspect of it. And, 
you know, the other aspect of paying it forward and giving to receive, like what if paying it for was built into the experience of the platform? So, you know, 30 days later released a very, very basic MVP, but the goal was just to test that exchange of support. And in theory, no one should ever go without support, meaning there is no scenario where someone would write a post and not get support from one of their peers. A response. Yeah. Yeah. A written response from one of their peers. And just for people listening, MVP is a minimum viable product. It's in the digital space and in other spaces, even if you're starting a business, you might might want to create a minimum viable product to see if that business has legs. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Chris created an MVP with the app to see if it would have some stickiness and people would want to start using it. Yeah. So I just wanted to give people that. But go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, yeah. And um, after like 10 rejections from Apple, it was finally approved 30 days after that. I'm glad you didn't give up. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. 10 rejections. Okay. I've heard, I've heard others. I have a friend that his app got rejected like 22 times before Mm -hmm. they actually said, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and do this. So he had to keep fixing it and you know, yeah. Apple's very picky about how they want things to look and be on their on their app store. Oh, yeah. But the coolest part for me is like as soon as it's live, it's like texting my friends in recovery, like sober sidekick, check it out. It's live in the app store. But then looking at the analytics and seeing people that I didn't know yeah. and reaching out to them and being like, how did you find us? And like on day one, them saying, I found you through a search. So seeing how big the problem was from the perspective that people are finding this on like the fifth page of some search yeah, because they're looking for a solution and isolation is their biggest problem. Right. You know, and seeing that like, and then seeing them all support each other from day one, Mm -hmm. that got my juices going. And, you know, that made me realize like this could be the start of something huge. That's an excerpt from an I Am Northwest Arkansas episode that was released earlier this year. You can hear the entire conversation between host Randy Wilburn and Chris Thompson, the developer of the Sober Sidekick app, by going to IamNorthwestArkansas.com. Just search for it on the website. And while there, you can also find this week's episode featuring a preview of Saturday's Juneteenth celebration in Springdale with Roe Bailey and Anthony Ball. And you can hear excerpts from current and past editions of I Am Northwest Arkansas almost every Tuesday on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. With me at the Carver Center for Public Radio is Pastor Clint Schneckloth, lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, You have three books in front of me, and these might be the thinnest, smallest books you've ever brought in when we talk about books. Well, that's because I loaned the big, fat ones (laughs) out to people already from by the same author. (laughs) Um, We just recently had uh, Victoria Goddard visit here in Northwest Arkansas, and... um, that's the novelist who wrote these little 
novellas that mm-hmm. I have. And um, we had her here for what we called Speculative Sunday. Um, at the church. At the church, yeah. So what we did was uh, I had written a letter to her just being because I loved her stuff, and I thought it had a lot of resonance with our tradition, and was like, you want to come to Arkansas? And she, she wrote back, and she was like, I would love to. And she's from uh, Prince Edward Island. Ah, so it was and a, of Green Gables. Yeah, it was yeah. a little journey for her. Yeah. We, we talked about that, about how many tourists come to Prince Edward Island just because of Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. It's quite a few. Well, yeah, I imagine, yeah. Um, and her thing is she has created this uh, world, the nine worlds, that she, the, all of her um, novels take place in that space in some mm-hmm. way or another. And the, the, the popular one, the one that has sold the most and the one that a lot of people at our church read and that they've got like copies of still signed at Pearls if people are interested, is The Hands of the Emperor. We've talked about this. Which we talked about. Yes. I meant, yeah, you and I actually did a, an on-air about it because right. I was so fascinated by the whole thing of like a guy might establish universal basic income for right. all the citizens of a kingdom, right? And... Uh, an alternative way of doing, like, say, speculative literature that's not dystopian, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but is actually hopeful. Right. Utopian. Yeah. Yeah. Almost more utopian. There's still struggles. Right. It's just... Right. And so what was fascinating talking to her when she was here, she is all self-published. Interesting. And... For many years, when she was publishing, she was just selling a few of the novels that she was writing, and she was fine with that. And then she was making a living selling cheese at a market in Prince Edward Island. All right. And then a couple cheese of years, she made. No, she just okay. was a, a retailer. Yeah, yeah like okay. the one. Yeah, like gotcha. a retailer. And then, about a year and a half ago, a, a Alex Rowland published this. Uh, essay on tor.com which is the blog for this big science fiction publisher mm-hmm. and the the title of the blog post was why isn't everybody reading victoria goddard and then made this big argument for why you should be reading victoria goddard and her uh novels since then have exploded wow. she she sold 80,000 copies of her novels last year wow which that's midlist for any publisher I mean, that's, like, really good. Right. In 2023? In 2023. Yeah. You know, I think that, like, if you see a novel and it's, like, kind of prominent at Barnes & Noble, 50,000 copies is mm-hmm. kind of, like, doing really well. Mm-hmm. So eight, selling 80,000 in one year and then doing it self-published is it just is amazing. wild. Um, and I was interested, too, and in, I love the whole kind of spectrum of the publishing industry, but she, she went that way partially because now um, – you can do the print-on-demand. Right. You know, she oh, right. Ha- she doesn't have to have 80,000 copies of the book in her home in Prince Edward Island. Right. So if you want the book through Amazon.com, you just print-on-demand through them. If you order through her website, then it's the, the company that she's picked to do print-on-demand. Right. Or you can just download it as a an e-book or, e-book or yeah. whatever. But the other reason that she did the publishing the way that she did is because her way of storytelling is not the traditional kind of uh, aim toward a big climax and then mm-hmm. a denouement. Mm-hmm. 
And she didn't really want to do the thing that's a push in the publishing industry and fantasy literature to publish like duologies or trilogies. Right. Because her way of storytelling is different than that. Right. Her way of storytelling is to tell these big stories that have kind of waves to them. That's what the Hands of the Emperor is like. And then she's done all these little side stories that all feed into. Sort of sidequels, I think they're called. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so like as an example, this is one of the short ones and really fun tower at the edge of the world and it's just a short little Looks novella. Like it might be 40 pages yeah you can read it I, like it's a short story right okay sure right or a what is the there's a there's actual definition of the difference between a novella and, and a, a short story yes, and i've read that and i have forgotten it. yeah yeah anyway of mice and men i know is a novella for whatever reason and this one is like a precursor to everything else that's happening in her bigger world but it stands alone as this little story, and it you get done with it, and it kind of like drops you in to okay. other stuff. But you don't have to have read it to pick up her other book. No. Yeah. And then Portrait of the Wide Sea Island Seas Islanders is um, basically right. It it tells you where the main character of Hands of the Emperor came from culturally okay, and who he was um, apprenticed to and all that kind of thing. So it's a backstory type thing. And then uh, Petty Treasons is, it takes place at the exact same time as Hands of the Emperor, but, but from another person's perspective. I love that idea. Yeah, which we've seen this a lot in literature lately. Like Marilyn Robinson has been telling the Gilead story from different perspectives. Right, you know? and you know there was the, the, the novel that came out, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago about Ahab's wife from yeah. Moby Dick and what it was. Or Wicked. Wicked is an example, right? right? From The Wizard of Oz from the witch's perspective. Right, yeah. exactly. And so... Um, what I love about this is the payoff. Um, no, you're right. It, it's it's kind of like when you watch, um, as long as Marvel or Star Wars does this right, you can just enjoy each of the movies or shows A standalone. Right. But there are payoffs if you've seen everything else. Yes. And the more you've seen, yes. the more of those Easter eggs there are. Yes. And so then this becomes like that. You know, so as just an example, I read The Tower at the Edge of the World. And then just before Victoria came, I read her new novel, uh, um, Daring Do, which is like this just kind of funny classic. It's very much a classic like fantasy Mm -hmm. origin story of of a adventuring party. And you get like 200 pages into it. And suddenly this one intersects it it rings and you're like what yeah uh, yeah <laughs> now if you didn't if you hadn't read this still a great novel yeah you're not missing well i wouldn't say you're not missing anything but you're not confused no but if you've read this one you're like no way <laughs> so so would you suggest reading these side sort of efforts first then the major novels or does it matter so could you have the same phenomenon if you're reading them you maybe um she has a uh, whole page on her website that kind of gives you a, a like a guide to reading her How, novels. Okay, all right. And she's got like you know if you want to enter it this way, you can enter this way. It's kind of like the question of where should you start with Star Wars? Or yeah, you know, because some people are like, well, go chronologically from when they were made, right? And other people are like, go through based on you know and when they take place. When they take place, right. um, and 
and I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer. I know that I started with Hands of the Emperor and then fell so in love with it that I decided to try to read everything that she'd written. Right. You know, that was kind of the direction I went. So I have to ask, I mean, we wanted to have her on the show, but that was she was here the week I had COVID. Mm-hmm. So that didn't happen. When you ask one of your favorite writers, someone you really admire, to come, and then they come, how was the experience? Did How was Speculative Sunday? How was everything? Well, it was so cool because... Uh, one, she we she preached, mm-hmm. and she basically in her sermon was like, "Well, you know, Dante and Boethius are both science fiction writers, right?" Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and then kind of talked about that whole phenomenon of, isn't it a little weird that Dante's led by Virgil, who's not even a Christian, even though mm-hmm. Dante's being led to this like, you know, through his faith tradition by Virgil, right? And she did this amazing. Um, kind of talk about that that really related our way of thinking about faith to speculative fiction. I love it. It was really fun. Mm-hmm. Victoria Goddard. And you can get Victoria Goddard's novel still signed at Pearls. They've got good. about a few copies left. So are you going to return the favor and go speak at on Prince Edward Island? Well, that'd be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Would you ask Victoria if I will she wants that. me to I come? Will. <laughs> pastor Clint Snackloth is lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. We're going to do this for autumn too, right? Yes. Or summer. Summer's after spring. Yes. We can do either or okay. both. Okay. We'll do both. Okay. Thank you. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, we spend 72 hours in Chicago at the largest free clinic in the nation, a place dedicated to serving people without health insurance. ¿Te costó ir al doctor? No, no. Pero mucha gente se dice, ah, que voy, pues si, si me muero, que me muera. That's This Week on Latino USA. Latino USA, Sunday afternoon at 3 on 91.3 KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sonora. Contributors to our program today included Jacqueline Froelich, Josie Lenora, Randy Wilburn, and Pastor Clint Schneckloth. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean, Daryl's most recent solo CD, is titled Still Here. You can find out more about that record and Daryl wherever you find out more about music online. We'll be back with you tomorrow, noon and 7, for a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a great rest of your day.